there's something that's been stirring in my spirit the last few weeks in particular that I've kind of put on hold and um, I uh, have just been longing to understand the kingdom of God for myself in a way that is true to scripture, in a way that makes sense, and in a way that leads us to to live the fullest life God has called us to. And so this has been stirring in my spirit for a while now, and uh, I've been sitting on it, organizing thoughts, and I felt as though it was the right time to finally talk about the kingdom of heaven and do an in-depth series on this. And by no uh, stretch of the imagination am I saying that I'm going to exhaustively touch on every facet of the kingdom of God. I can't do that. I'm, a, I'm one person. Uh, this is a lifelong journey of understanding and knowing the things of God. But I am going to do my best to clearly articulate uh, the essential pillars, at least, the foundational truths for the kingdom of God in order for us to understand how to function as citizens, in order for us to understand you know, how to live uh, with God as our king who, who reigns sovereignly over us. And so there's so much that I want to unpack for you, but today in particular, in this first episode all about the kingdom of God, it's weird that we're starting here, and I know some of you are like, okay, I get the, I understand why you're going with the kingdom of God, but why talk about the cosmic rebel kingdom? What even is that? Well, because I thought we should start the place where we currently are at in human history. There is still a real uh, cosmic rebel kingdom that is against God and his people and his son. And it's still set up in this world. There are people still operating as vessels of this, you know, dark kingdom that is opposed to God. And and so we're going to slowly work our way through that. And I'll, I'll give you the overall outline for the series so you know where we're going. Okay, so in episode one today, what we're going to talk about is how the kingdom of darkness actually fits into God's ultimate plan and his eternal kingdom. The second episode, which will be Wednesday, is going to be all about how the kingdom of this world actually transitions into the kingdom of God ultimately, um, and how that logistically works, and what God intends to do with how the world is set up currently, and the empires of our world, and the kings. How is God going to transition into the kingdom of heaven? And making sense of that is uh, really cool, actually. And then the third episode, which will be next Monday, um, we're going to talk about how Israel actually used to be a kingdom and what Jesus says about the kingdom of Israel and what happened to Israel as a nation, but mainly as a kingdom under God and you know, what happens to with Israel now that Jesus has come. Okay. We're going to use a lot of the, look at a few of the parables rather that Jesus gives. And then next Wednesday, the fourth episode, we'll talk about how this eternally existent King Jesus reigns supremely and how he's the head of his kingdom and what it means that Jesus is our King and our sovereign ruler in the fifth episode, we'll look at how the rebel enemies um, of God actually turn into citizens of God's kingdom. Like, how do we, those who used to be a part of Satan's kingdom, how do we become citizens of God's eternal kingdom? How do we become servants in this glorious kingdom and, you know, uh, fellow members of the household of God? How does that actually happen? Um, and then we'll look at episode six, what it means to be a kingdom of priests, um, and how that functions and how we ought to live as priests in this beautiful kingdom of God. And then episode seven, we're going to look at some basic components of God's kingdom, how it's already but not yet, how it's present but not fully realized or complete yet, and what that means for us. And then uh, in the last episode, we'll look at, that'll be a live stream event that'll be happening in the evening on a Friday. And we'll look at 
all the parables that clearly explain uh, the, the kingdom of God and dimensions of God's kingdom as it related to Israel and how things kind of morph and transition a bit when Jesus comes and ascends to the Father after resurrecting. And all of that is what you can expect in this series on the kingdom. And again, the reason I'm going here is because I, if Jesus talked about the kingdom most often, if you read through his teachings and the discourses and the parables, and a lot of what Jesus talks about is he relates it to the kingdom. And so many of us live with that being a foreign concept to us. Like we get the gospel, we get Jesus, and that is central. I get that. It's foundational. That's most important. But now we need to understand what it means to be citizens of this kingdom, what this kingdom is. And so there is an enemy kingdom at war with um, our God and his kingdom, and you need to know that which means that we are technically at war every single day. This is what we call spiritual warfare, but it's not with flesh and blood. That's not our problem. That's not our battle. The people who align themselves with the kingdom of darkness are simply vessels who have chosen to allow darkness to flow through their life into the world. They're not our problem. They're simply being puppeteered by the enemy and choosing to align with the kingdom of darkness. Our real warfare is with the kingdom of darkness. And we're engaged in warfare as long as we're alive until God ushers in his glorious eternal kingdom. So you need to know how to function in this life as citizens of God's kingdom, as children of God, in the midst of warfare that simply never ceases. It is always ongoing. Sometimes it's heightened. Sometimes it's not as, you know, incredibly, you know, difficult to you know navigate. And sometimes it's easier. But it's always raging around us. There's warfare all time. So part of understanding God's kingdom, and it's interesting that we're starting here, but part of understanding the kingdom of God means we need to understand what God has revealed to us about the enemy kingdom of darkness. Now, I'm not going to shine a light too long on the enemy kingdom and his darkness and and the strategies of the enemy. We don't want to be a people that focus so much on the enemy that it begins to, you know, create some kind of anxiety and worry in us. We don't want to give the enemy that much credit, but we do want to at least look at what God has chosen to reveal about the enemy and his kingdom. So there is an enemy kingdom of darkness, both in the spiritual realm and here physically on the earth among humanity. It's this dual kind of thing going on where you have a war in the heavens, a war on the earth. You have a spiritual warfare and you have the people on the planet, image bearers of God that choose to align themselves with the kingdom of darkness. And so there is a real legitimate war on the earth, but it's mainly spiritual. And it can manifest as physical and national and economic. There can be all these different dimensions of it, but the war on earth is a mirror reflection of the war in the heavens. And you got to understand that. There are people right now, real time, all across the planet, in your communities, in your neighborhoods, maybe even in your families, people who have chosen to align themselves with the kingdom of darkness or They've chosen to align themselves with the kingdom of God. And every single day, people are choosing, will I let my conduct and my way of life match with the kingdom of darkness or match with the kingdom of God? Will I choose to live with God as my king or let my flesh and this world and the enemy lead my decisions today? And so if we want to function as citizens of this higher kingdom, if we want to understand the ways of the king, being Jesus, It requires us also to understand how the kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of darkness ultimately fits into the big picture. So I don't want to give the enemy too much airtime. That's not my intention here. I just want to answer the question, you know, what role do 
the kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of darkness, what role do they play in God's grand plan? And what do we need to know about the kingdom of darkness and the enemy kingdoms of this world uh, that align themselves with Satan and his kingdom? What do we need to know? What is essential for us to know how to navigate life? Okay. When we talk about kingdoms, um, there are a few things you need to like have in mind when I say the word kingdom, because again, that can be a foreign concept to us, uh, people who don't necessarily operate under a kingdom. It's foreign to many of us, especially me. There has to be this cultural gap that needs to be closed. And so kingdom in Hebrew, at least most often that I was able to, to study this concept out, um, it refers to sovereignty, a dominion, and the reign of a king. Okay. In the Greek, it's, it carries that same idea, kingdom, sovereignty, a royal power. Kingdoms involve government. Kingdoms involve political structure. Kingdoms involve hierarchy. Okay. Kingdoms involve territory. Kingdoms involve domain of rulership, right? A territory. Kingdoms involve a king. Obviously, there has to be a power and authority that is in charge and ruling. Um, kingdoms involve citizens um, and servants of that king. Kingdoms involve influence and a degree of reputation and renown and glory in that sphere that it, the kingdom operates in. Okay, so think of all these different things when I say kingdom. And sometimes we'll touch on different dimensions of a kingdom when we're talking about the kingdom of God. But know that when we talk about a kingdom, we're talking about a government, a territory, a king, citizens of that king, and then the influence and reputation of that kingdom in whatever you know space it occupies. Okay, so think of all these things. But if you're just to boil it down and go, just give me the basic idea of what a kingdom is. A sovereignty, a reign, a dominion. Those are the key dimensions of what a kingdom is. And so when we talk about the kingdom of God, which we'll get to, and when we talk about the kingdom of darkness, all those different dimensions are present in both the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the enemy. And it's on us to recognize that and understand, um, you know, these things that are important. Okay, so let's look at a few things. Because when we talk about the kingdom of darkness, usually what we think of mainly is Satan and a few demons. Um, I want to give you actually a few scriptures, and now we're getting the scripture, a few scriptures that clearly articulate um, the fact that there is a an enemy kingdom that is purely spiritual, that is demonic, that is opposed to God, but can manifest in our physical world through people that choose to align themselves with the ways of the enemy and with the kingdom of darkness. So there is a real kingdom of darkness. Luke chapter 11, Jesus says, after you know the Pharisees accuse him of uh, really operating by the power of Satan, the power of Beelzebub really is what they say because he just cast it out a demon and they go, we are just using the power of Satan. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, he said to them, straight up, you know, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. If it, and a divided household ends up falling. <laughs> so if Satan is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? Is Jesus being metaphorical? Is he being figurative? Or does he mean that Satan actually is ruling over a literal kingdom? That if indeed it is divided, it will crumble and fall. I don't think Jesus is being metaphorical here or figurative or just making a point uh, about a real life scenario by using some mythical language. I think there's a literal kingdom that Satan is um, functioning as 
the ruler over. And this is not to the neglect of God's sovereignty. It doesn't minimize God's reign or, or Jesus' supremacy. It actually magnifies it when you start to see how the enemy and his kingdom just fit neatly into God's overall plan. Colossians 1.13, it says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. There is a domain, a sphere of, of influence in which darkness reigns. There's a domain of darkness. Romans touches on this as well. And he transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. You know, Romans will touch on how sin reigned um, until, I forget who it was, Moses, the law was given. Um, But this is what Jesus has done. He's delivered us from the domain, another translation says, the kingdom of darkness. And he's transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Okay, so just like we saw in Luke chapter 11, there's a kingdom that Satan seems to be head over, which you can say is the kingdom of darkness, which you and I used to be a part of, and there's still people all around the world who are still sucked into. They're still sucked into that. They're still operating under the influence and reign of Satan, and they're in that kingdom of darkness. That is a real spiritual reality. Uh, There's a kingdom of darkness, and it's opposed to the kingdom of Jesus. You always see these two kingdoms clashing, not to say uh, there's a struggle or some kind of the kingdom of darkness might win, but the kingdom of darkness is always pushing against what God and his kingdom is doing, but God is just unstoppable. There's no, there's no, you know, question of who's going to win in the end. It's it's not even a, uh, a contest. God absolutely demolishes the enemy and his kingdom and all those who align themselves with the kingdom of darkness. You know, in Revelation 16, it says this, and I don't want to get too into eschatology, just the presence of this kingdom I want to note. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, that being, the again, representing his dominion and rule. The beast has a degree of authority to reign uh, for a season until God crushes that, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. And then you'll see people actually, you know, suffering because of, this kingdom being plunged into darkness, but it it seems to be correlated to, related to the beast sitting on the throne. There's a kingdom that is plunged into darkness, a kingdom of darkness. You can go on and on, Um, but I want to show you a couple things. Satan is actually communicated as being um, the ruler of this present world. Not to say the owner, not to say the rightful uh, sovereign, but to say that The enemy has a degree of authority in the earth right now. Uh, Jesus ultimately will destroy any of that. Just like John and Jesus will both say, John the Baptist, you know, any degree of authority someone has, including spiritual beings, for the time being, um, it is given by God. God has allowed any degree of authority that anyone has, including Satan and his, his, his demons, whatever they have, um, God has sovereignly ordained that's a seasonal thing. It's not going to be forever. Um, you see this with nations, and I'm not saying God wanted the enemy to rule over the earth, but Adam and Eve forfeiting their rule in the garden, and humanity essentially giving up uh, their right to rule the earth under God's authority, giving that up to the enemy. That's why legally it was transferred to him. And so now, this is what Jesus says in John twelve thirty one. He says, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out? It's a reversal of the garden. Instead of Adam and Eve being cast out of the garden because of their sin, Jesus is actually bringing humanity back into the garden, those who would believe in him, but he's casting out the enemy. How? 
Well, through his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. That was Jesus conquering and triumphing over the present darkness and the spiritual forces that are opposed to God. And whatever hierarchy that kingdom has, Jesus triumphs over all of it. And a good book to reference um, would be Michael Heiser's Unseen Realm, if you have not read that yet. Fantastic read. It'll challenge a few of the presuppositions you and I have, especially as Western Christians, but it is a fantastic read to understand the unseen realm and how it relates to what Jesus does and all of the things that go into that. But Jesus says the ruler of this world being who? Well, being Satan. He's cast out. Now, is he cast out in terms of he has no influence anymore on the world and people aren't going to follow his ways at all? We see all around the world that's not the case. What Jesus actually means is that he will be overthrown in terms of anyone who trusts in Jesus as king is no longer under the authority and oppression of the enemy. The enemy is cast out. It's, it's the whole already but not yet. I am in Christ and the enemy has no authority over me as a child of God because I belong to the king. But we still see his influence in the world. We still see the residual effects of Satan ruling over this world in the people who choose to follow in sin. Okay, so Jesus admits, you know, that Satan is indeed the ruler of this present world as it is. That's why you see pockets of God's kingdom invading this world because it is, like Jesus says, a mustard seed that slowly takes over. John 14, 30 uh, Jesus says, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. That being Satan. He has no claim on me. Jesus even gives him a pronoun. He has no claim on me. But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Let's go from here. So twice Jesus refers to Satan as the current ruler of this present world. And there's nothing wrong with saying that. It doesn't minimize Jesus' power, authority, or dominion. It actually magnifies it when you see what he's done to overthrow the enemy and bring us into freedom. John 16, 11, it says this, you know, talking about what the Spirit of God will do when he comes. Uh, concerning sin, you know, he'll convict. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. When Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden, that was the rightful judgment that came upon them for their sin and rebellion. In the same way, the enemy, Satan, and all his demons, and the whole kingdom of darkness are judged in terms of this is your final, this is your punishment. You are cast out. You are removed. So for when Jesus says in John 14, the ruler of this world is cast out, or John 12, this includes judgment. This is the judgment on the serpent and the enemy. Okay, so what I want you to see here is that there is someone, some spiritual entity, some force that God has allowed to have a degree of authority over this present world. Um, you can call him Hasatan. You can say that there is, uh, he's the serpent. Paul talks about that. Whatever name you give him, he is the, seemingly, there. he is the ruler of the kingdom of darkness. Um but at the same time, I want to show you something. In Ephesians and Colossians particularly, uh, Paul reveals that there seems to be a, a hierarchy of sorts in the kingdom of darkness. So like I said, in every kingdom, 
kingdom of God, kingdom of darkness, any human you know, government, there's hierarchy. There's a degrees of authority and rule that are given, spheres of influence and responsibility. We see the same thing true of Satan's kingdom, uh, him being the ruler. I don't know if he delegates or what. I don't really care. All I know is that there are lesser uh, you know, agents of darkness that choose to do whatever is needed to try and thwart the plans of God, which they can't. Ephesians 3.10 talks about this. It talks about how Jesus, um, or Paul rather, was given this grace to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things, okay? And verse 10 says, So that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known, watch, to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. So I'm going to highlight this in yellow. There are rulers, there are authorities in the heavenly realms, in the heavenly spaces. You might say in the space that is unseen, in the spiritual realm, or possibly, depending on where you stand when it comes to Genesis and what you think of planets, what you see as being the stars, commonly referred to as stars, are actually spiritual rulers and authorities in those heavenly places. Either way, okay, whatever your cosmology is, the point is that there are spiritual governing authorities and rulers in the heavenly places that God has allowed to have a degree of uh, rule and, 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 and dominion for a time, but not forever. In fact, well, I won't say anything about that. Save that. Ephesians 6.12 tells us, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, which I already said, but against the rulers against the authorities, against the cosmic powers, that which transcends this tiny world that we know. It is cosmic in nature, way beyond us in the unseen realm. These cosmic powers and authorities and rulers, this present darkness and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, that's our real enemy. That's where the real battle is. You can include the flesh in that, that which is opposed to God and seems to be manipulated by this present darkness. You can refer to the world as part of that and those who are against God. You can, a lot of things can be lumped into that category, but the point is there are degrees of, kinds of rule and responsibility as it relates to the kingdom of darkness. And so when we get to the kingdom of God, this is important. The enemy always tries to counterfeit what God does and has. It's a cheap imitation. It's a garbage counterfeit, you know, version. But it's still a, 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 an attempt to do what God is doing. So the hierarchy seen in the kingdom of God, which is ultimate and eternal, the enemy tries to counterfeit that with his own rulers and authorities. And you can include demons. You can say, you know, those are the spirits of the Nephilim. <laughs> you can see whatever the present darkness is, Paul says that is current. So even after Jesus resurrects and ascends, because someone might go to John and go, well, Jesus was only talking at, at that point in human history prior to his resurrection and ascension that Satan was the ruler of this world. Paul still says there is a present darkness. And the present darkness with the cosmic powers and rulers and authorities still in place that we are currently wrestling against means that they're still holding their position of authority in this current world as it is. And again, that is not to knock on the authority and sovereignty of God in any way. Um, this is just the truth of God's word and what's happening real time. 
So to make sense of God's kingdom, part of that involves making sense of what's going on in the human rebellious kingdoms in the world and the cosmic you know, kingdom of darkness above. Colossians 2.15, it says, what Jesus does when he nails uh, sin to the cross and the legal demands of the law and all our trespasses, he, this is what he does. This is the death, death and resurrection of Jesus in a conquering, triumphing kind of perspective. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and he put them to open shame. <laughs> made a mockery of them, made a spectacle, paraded them around by triumphing over them. This is what God does in his son. This is the the victorious death and resurrection of Christ. It's not a sad thing in terms of, oh, he's gone. It was sad for a moment. And it's a bummer that he had to face that kind of suffering and turmoil and, and, and incredible, you know, uh, oppression and mockery and all of that. It's sad. It was a tragedy. But man, it was actually Jesus victoriously conquering over what Paul refers to as the cosmic forces and spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. These are the rulers and authorities. These are not human authorities, Pharisees and centurions and governors and Pilate and Herod. That's not what's in mind here. Read the chapter. This is all spiritual in nature in terms of what Christ has done that went on behind the scenes of his physical sacrifice and the actions that were committed. All of that had spiritual implications for eternity. And part of this is why Jesus can say the ruler of this world is cast out. He's judged. Because on the cross, he actually brought them to nothing and lifted all the authority and power that death and darkness once had over humanity, lifted that so that now anyone through Christ can be free from that oppression, just like Israel's free from Egypt. And we can be free from that slavery and come into the light and the life that God offers through his son. That's the victory of the cross. It's not just over sin and death. It is now that sin has no legal claim on the people of God. Death has no legal claim. The kingdom of darkness has no legal claim. The rulers and authorities that once manipulated you and oppressed you and puppeteered you, they have no legal claim on you as children of God now. Because Jesus disarmed them. Like he talks about in the parable where he says a strong man can only plunder a stronger, uh, another strong man, right? And uh, can only plunder him once he's tied him up. And that's what Jesus does. He plunders the kingdom of darkness by doing what? By giving himself up in love and sacrificial, um, sacrificial love for his people. That's him disarming, leaving them powerless, rendering these rulers and authorities without weapons. So they can't do anything to us anymore now that we're in Christ because he paid our debt and he died our death. And this is the gospel. And he triumphed in the resurrection and ascended to the right hand of the father so that as our great high priest and as the one who holds our covenant together, since we're bonded to him, you know, and we're bonded to the father in him through faith, the enemy and his kingdom have no legal claim on us anymore. And this begins to touch areas of salvation and soteriology and eternal security that, frankly, I don't want to talk about right now, but you can start to see the implications. Colossians 1.16, if you go just a chapter before this, Paul will say um, this. And this is why I say in chapter 2, it makes sense that the rulers and authorities are what he references in chapter 1. It says, by him, that's Jesus, all things were created. 
in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, all things were created through him and for him. That doesn't mean everything will choose to align with that intended purpose. We have rebellious spiritual beings. We have rebellious Satan. We have rebellious humans, image bearers of God. Creation can be rebellious. But the intention and the purpose behind what God has made is that it would be for his son, for his glory. So his son is glorified in that. It's a shared glory that we see in John 17. The father and the son mutually glorified. And so dominions, rulers, authorities, like we saw in Ephesians, I don't see any reason to say that Jesus or Paul here is talking about people. Uh, he could, because guess what? He says all things were created, not just invisible, but also visible in heaven and on earth. So you should say both. We'll just say both. We don't got to choose. But I think it makes most sense when we get to Colossians 2, when he talks about putting them to open shame, the death and on the cross where Jesus seems to be exposed and, and, and put to shame. And you're like, that's a mockery. No, actually, that was him making a spectacle of the enemy and dying to free us from death. He beat death by dying. What a reversal. <laughs> what, what, an, what a twist. That's what he does. And so there are dominions and rulers and authorities, both visible and invisible. And guess what? If the worldly, earthly people, <laughs> if people who have authority choose to submit themselves to the kingdom of darkness, guess what? You have the kingdom of darkness using those people and those governments and those nations and those rulers as agents through which they can pump their darkness into the world. That's how the enemy works. Ephesians chapter 1 talks about this conquering um, victory of Jesus. Again, Ephesians chapter 1. But look at what Jesus is triumphing over again. It's not just sin and death and fulfilling the law. All those are like fantastic things to talk about, but they have spiritual implications. So Paul says, I want to pray. He prays that we would know, the Ephesian church would know, uh, and I think churches down the line, that we would all know the greatness of God's power according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ. What's so great about the power worked in Christ? Well, here's the power Paul's referring to. The power when he raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. In the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And you can include physical human rule and authority and power and dominion in that. But to be consistent with Paul's usage of these terms in Ephesians, like Ephesians 3 and Ephesians 6, these rulers and authorities in both cases refer to spiritual heavenly rule and authority. It's the invisible realm. And so it makes sense that Jesus resurrecting and ascending to the right hand of the Father, that power is Jesus rendering the kingdom of darkness powerless, not just over him, and not just saying death has no grip on me, but to free us as well. That's what he does. That's the whole reason he comes. So that's the kingdom of darkness. That's the hierarchy we're working with. That's how you understand what's going on in our world and the present darkness that is over people's lives and entire cultures, entire nations, entire you know cities and communities. This is how you make sense of it. There are principalities governing certain spheres, certain you know uh, territories that for now are under darkness. But how does God begin to liberate and free people? Well, 
through the power and the message of the gospel and the working of the Spirit of God and the truth that comes in and invades and people who are submitted to God's rule as king entering those spaces of darkness and bringing the light and expanding you know, people's understanding to show them this is who God is and then they become agents of light and citizens of God's kingdom and you begin to see how the parable of the mustard seed actually works itself out real time in our world and throughout human history. It is this slow, small thing that starts off in Jerusalem and grows Judea. Then you have Samaria. Then you have the Gentiles. And then you have the entire world right now, everywhere, someone um, in every country. I, I Maybe not every country, but all around the world, you have believers. It's this slow-growing thing. I can't wait until every nation does know about the truth because they're there are areas in the world where it is just present darkness and God will send the light somehow because he's faithful. But here's where we talk about the part of not just the heavenly kind of invisible. And when you think heavenly, you think, oh, the space where God resides. Heaven is where God resides, but the heavenly places just refers to the invisible spiritual realm. Okay. So in the heavenly places, there seems to be a um, a rebellion, a cosmic rebellion, spiritual beings who have authority and governance and had dominion, whatever that looked like. And they go, you know what? We want to rebel against our creator and rebel against God and actually manipulate and abuse. And that's fine. Your judgment's coming. And it's already been initiated at the cross and the resurrection. And it'll reach its completion when Jesus comes. But there's also the human side of things. There are image bearers of God who have been uh, manipulated, indwelt, possessed by demonic entities and spiritual forces of evil that go, you know what? I have power and authority and I want to use that to oppress and enslave and burden and ruin people's lives and they align themselves with the kingdom of darkness. And there are many human kingdoms and governments and nations that choose to align themselves with Satan and his kingdom. And therefore, they become agents of the serpent. And the, the, the serpent, Satan, actually uses these people and their authority to pump more darkness into those regions and into those spheres of influence so that his darkness, death, and sin pervades and spreads as people willingly do the bidding of their master, which Satan is their master until Jesus comes and liberates them. So people can become agents of darkness. That's how we should learn to see sin and learn to see those who are, are unbelievers. Um, no matter how morally good they try and live and how upright they try and live, people who are outside of Christ, there's no in-between. There's no, well, you're kind of in the interim. You're just in like the valley that separates the kingdom of God from the kingdom of darkness. You're in neither. You're neutral. There's no such thing. You're either in the kingdom of God or you're still in the kingdom of darkness. And because you're in the kingdom of darkness, nothing but destruction and death can come through, can come from your life because the enemy has sway over you. And John 8, 44 actually speaks to this. It's kind of harsh, but that's just the truth. And this is why it's so important for us to, you know, understand these things so we can look out in our world, our communities, and people in our family even and go, ah, that makes sense. We sometimes forget we're not in heaven. <laughs> we're not in the kingdom of God in terms of like, it's fully realized and everything's good and no more sin and death. And yet we somehow like live like nothing bad should happen. 
John 8, 44, this is what Jesus says to the self-righteous, rebellious, unbelieving um, religious leaders. He says, you are of your father, the devil. You don't want that to be on your resume. You don't want that certification hanging on your wall. I do the will of my father, the devil. He was a murderer. Your will is to do your father's desires. And he was a murderer from the beginning. He, he doesn't stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he's a liar and the father of lies. So even Jesus is looking at these people, rebellious, hard-hearted, obstinate, unbelieving, just evil people. And he's going, you guys are just like Satan because Satan's your father and he wants to murder and lie and so do you. And he doesn't stand in the truth, and neither do you. And you actually want to do the will of Satan. That's your will. Your will is to do your father's desires. Oof. So people can choose to align themselves with what? The will of Satan in his kingdom. It goes well beyond just, ah, oh, I struggled with sin, or I did this thing. Romans talks about this. You can either submit your members to righteousness and do what brings the life of God into the world, or do what actually brings destruction and death into the world through your action, whether it be one time or seasonal or repetitive, whatever it is, to submit your members to sin is to actually partake in and be a participant in the darkness of this world. Acts 4.26, it says, why, you know, you have the people, the early church, uh, the apostles have just been persecuted, um, and they're kind of gathering together and huddling up and they're figuring out a game plan. What do we do? How do we do this? And they start praying. Um, and they come together, they lift their voice and they go, oh, Lord, you who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them, you who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Spirit, why did the nations or the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? And this is coming from, I believe, Psalm chapter 2. Okay, so David, inspired by the Spirit of God, wrote this down. Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. So they're looking back at the Psalms and going, Ah, David prophetically declared what would take place with Jesus. The peoples would plot in vain, meaning they would kill him, but it would amount to nothing because he would resurrect, and that would be the means by which we're saved. The kings of the earth, the rulers, and they would gather against Jesus and his anointed. For truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, both Herod and, and Pilate and the Gentiles and the people of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So there is ultimately over even the enemy's strategies and, and plans and attempts. It is God sovereignly allowing and orchestrating certain things to be in place so that people find themselves, you know what, I don't do this. And God's not determining that certain people will do evil. It gets into Calvinist theology, which I do not want to right now. But God is sovereignly orchestrating all things to play into his plan to bring redemption and bring the kingdom into the world. So even the attempts of the enemy and, you know, Herod and, and Pilate and the Gentiles going, let's kill this Jesus claims to be the Messiah. There's no king but Herod. Let's kill him. And they kill him. And God goes, you guys fell right into my plan. <laughs> That's exactly what we came to do. My son came to do this. 
and you thought you were doing something original and you beat them, actually that's the means by which I'm going to bring life. plays right into the hand of God. And so this is how the apostles and the early church viewed this psalm in Psalm chapter 2 is the rulers and the authorities and the nations coming against Jesus. That's the cross. That's them nailing him to a cross. And this is what 1 Corinthians 2 actually has to say, which makes a lot of sense, which comes to, you know, these are people who go, we want to do the will of, of Satan. And God goes, okay, you want to do it? I've already worked it into my plan. That's the means by which I'll bring salvation is through my son's death. So you're doing exactly what it is that uh, I want. 1 Corinthians 2, 6 through 8, this is what Paul says. He says, yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Although it's not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. Now we saw in Colossians and Ephesians that most often when Paul talks about the, the, the rulers and authorities, not always, okay? Doesn't mean every time he refers to a ruler, it's a spiritual entity, but a lot of the times it is. So look at the spiritual wisdom he's talking about. But we do impart a secret hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this. If they had, they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. So there are rulers of this present age, as Paul is speaking, real people who are in charge of different territories and, and cities and communities and nations, real authorities in the physical realm. But there is also, as we saw in Colossians and Ephesians, real spiritual entities that are rebellious, who are governing certain territories and peoples and communities and are over that and oppressing those people. And so it's not just physical or spiritual, it's a participation. In the same way that you and I can participate in God's kingdom and participate in his will on the earth, so people can do that with the enemy in his kingdom. And what we see in Acts chapter 4 is the apostles making sense of that psalm going, yep, the rulers of this world tried to thwart the plans of God and ruin what Jesus came to do, but they actually played a role in that. They played a hand in making it happen. And now we have 1 Corinthians 2, Paul saying, look, if the rulers of this age understood what they were doing, they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. Now you can say he's talking about the Pharisees and, and the Romans and the religious leaders and Pilate and Herod, whoever played a hand in that. And you go, those people. But I want you to think for a second. The spiritual rulers who are over and manipulating people, and we see Satan enter Judas Iscariot in uh, John's gospel, I think, or Luke's gospel. Uh, we see you know, people who are like being a, clearly demonically possessed to do what they do, or demonically influenced at least among the Jews who are crying out, crucify him all of a sudden. you know. And um, there, there, there's this obvious spiritual uh, fog that's over the people moving them to do what they do, to cry out, crucify and drive nails through. I mean, it's demonic. When you think about the torture Jesus goes through, that kind of uh, death, that kind of suffering is absolutely demonic in nature. And so it's not just people going, let's do this. It's the influence of the enemy behind them. So it's not just nations and big important people that the enemy goes after. It's also the common folk. It's also just the citizens of kingdoms. Not just get the king, but we see this in the Old Testament with Israel. You know, the king ends up going, you know what? Let's walk away from God. Who follows? Well, the citizens. 
And when a, when a king actually does what is upright, it seems like a lot of the citizens flourish and tend to follow that direction. So leadership and authority has a huge impact. Uh, you know, when it trickles down to the people and those who are in charge along the way, it has a huge impact on the communities and whatever, you know, domain of influence um, that an authority has. And so the rulers of this age, I think what's happening is if the enemy in his kingdom knew what they were doing, knew that they were actually dooming themselves by crucifying Jesus, they wouldn't have done it. They wouldn't have moved people to cry out and do what they did. The enemy would not have been that stupid. I mean, the enemy's stupid, but he's not that dumb to go, you know what? I want to, I want to doom myself and my kingdom. I'm sure something else would have taken place. We see this in Matthew chapter 4. The enemy tries to tempt Jesus over and over. And then at the cross, we see the Pharisees and religious leaders echoing what Satan said in the wilderness. It's like they're speaking from him. And they're saying, if you're the son of God, come down. Just like Satan said in the wilderness. If you're the son of God, X, Y, and Z, A, B, and C, do this. And so we see that mirror image. It's like, are we looking at Satan here? These people seem to really speak from And Jesus goes, yep, Satan's their father, so it makes sense that they'd be saying what they're saying and wanting what they're wanting. Their will is to do their father's desires. So the rulers of this age, however you, you know, parse that out, I believe it's spiritual and physical. These are the spiritual rulers in the heavenly places concocting a plan to kill the Son of God all the way from his birth. Like since the beginning of Jesus coming into the world, Herod was after him, right? Trying to kill him. Why? Satan knew. He knew that he was important, so he wanted to kill him off. What he didn't know (laughs) was that by killing him off the way he did is actually the means by which we're given salvation and freedom from sin. He screwed himself over. So let me show you a few passages. I know we're getting a little bit off topic, but think with me, okay? Think with me. Think with me. When we talk about the cosmic rebel kingdom, Satan and his demons and the principalities and those rulers and authorities in the invisible realm and the clouds, they also are manipulating image bearers of God to do their bidding, right? But Jesus admits people want to do the evil that the Satan that Satan and his kingdom wants them to do. They're like, we, we want to do that. You're not forcing us. We, we would love to engage in darkness, okay? So, so we have that going on. What I want you to see in the Old Testament is that, and I would reference you to um, the Bible Project is doing a, a podcast currently. Shout out to them. It's a fantastic podcast. It's called, uh, currently, it's about uh, the dragon, the serpent of old. And what you'll notice is in, in that the old, in the Old Testament, kings and kingdoms are often symbolically represented or described with the imagery of the serpent or the dragon, or the beast. You know, you can look at the king of Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar. You can look at Pharaoh and the king of Egypt. You can look at the king of Assyria. You can look at the king of Tyre. You can look at even the kings of Israel that come down the line. They're often described as being beastly in nature or having dragon, serpent, you know, like qualities and characteristics. In other words, the reason that they're being described with this imagery and with this language is because they are themselves embodying the ways of the devil. And by that decision, they're becoming the serpent. They're becoming the kingdom of darkness in the earth. They're engaging and participating in what the enemy wants them to. I'll take you to a couple passages to show you. Just a couple examples. Ezekiel 28 
which commonly people will say, you know, God through Ezekiel is actually talking to Satan. I don't think that's what's happening. I think that the characteristics given to the king of Tyre and the way the king of Tyre is described, it's supposed to be reminiscent of the serpent in the garden. You're not supposed to see God literally talking to the serpent, but rather the poetic imagery used of the king of Tyre is supposed to be reminiscent of not just the serpent in the garden, but of every other rebellious image bearer that has come down the line who has chosen to follow in the ways of the enemy. So look at what God through Ezekiel says about the king of Tyre who is very prideful, very rich, living in luxury, thinks he's safe, has a stronghold for themselves. Uh, I believe Tyre was a, um, it was a very high lofty city, at least on the, not the beach, but on the, I can't think right now, on the sh- not on the shores, but it was close to the ocean. So there's a sense in which uh, trade is taking place and the king of Tyre has set up a, a, a system for him and his nation to, essentially be super rich um and so it's a center for merchants and people you know coming from all over the place to buy and sell goods and he set up an incredible economy and he's very prideful with his power and his riches and god speaks to the king of tyre thinking he's safe behind his walls um and this is what he says the word of the lord came to me son of man raise a lamentation over the king of tyre God wants Ezekiel to actually lament over the depressing news that's about to be relayed. This is sad. This is not, ha ha, this is is tragic. Raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord God, you were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom, perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Now, again, this is God talking to the king of Tyre. You can say, well, there was a spiritual entity behind him manipulating and pulling the strings. If you want to go that route, fine. But at least notice the the language used of the king of Tyre that is reminiscent and of the serpent. You know, the serpent being in the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Sardius, topaz, diamond, beryl, onyx, jasper, Sapphire, emerald, carbuncle, you can do a deep study on those and the symbolic representations of what those are. And crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. What's he noting here about the king of Tyre? His luxury, his uh, beauty, his riches, right? On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. This is where people get hung up. Look at the word in Hebrew. Um, I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God in the midst of the stones of fire. You walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. Who is God talking to? He's actually talking to the king of Tyre. Um, You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. As most human beings end up experiencing, innocence, you know, slowly fades and you start to become more corrupt. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst and you sinned. And in verse 16, it seems to take an abrupt shift. And you're like, I was tracking like verse verse uh, 11 through 15. It seemed to perfectly describe what we think about Satan, what we think about the serpent. And I don't think this is supposed to be a description of Satan. Rather, it's a description of the king of Tyre using poetic imagery and language that is likened to the serpent, likened to the devil, who, you know, actually had 
a sense of beauty, had us had authority, had you know uh, created by God, and you know here we have the King of Tyre um, likened to that. He's being compared. He says, "So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub." Because you're like, when did Satan trade? When did he? Uh, well, the violence and the sin part. You're like, yeah, but this is referring to actually the the economic engagement and the, the the trade of the king of Tyre. And again, how the luxury and the riches that he has has become a snare to him and a sense of pride for him. And this is the language used. I cast you from the mountain of God. I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. In other words, this guy had uh, some high status. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. This is typically where people get their understanding of where Satan came from, how he fell, what he did. Um, I find that troubling that we would take a passage like this that is clearly addressed to a human image bearer king, uh, the actual physical human king of Tyre, and then we make some theology, um, not even theology, some understanding of Satan that comes from this really confusing passage. I find that somewhat troubling, but he says, I cast you to the ground just like we see in the garden. What does God do? He tells the serpent, on your belly you will go, uh, cast you down. This is a, this is a common uh, motif in scriptures. When something or someone is cast down to the ground, kingdoms, kings, rebels, people, uh, spiritual beings that are rebellious, they're cast down. It's a way of saying, you have been, here's your judgment. You've been judged. You've been brought low. Whether you're cut down like a tree like King of Nebuchadnezzar, or you're cast to the ground, or you topple over, or you're humbled down, or you're brought low, all these ways of saying you've been humbled and judged. He goes, I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. Still talking to the king of Tyre. By the multitude of your iniquities and the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. So I brought fire out from your midst, and it consumed you, and it turned you to ashes on the earth in the sight of all who saw you. And this is God speaking to the judgment that's coming on the king of Tyre and Tyre itself. Um, and we're going to see that happen through partially, I believe, King Nebuchadnezzar, if memory serves me right. And then I think, if I'm not mistaken, someone's going to correct me, it was um, the nation that takes over Babylon, the Medo-Persian Empire. I don't think they come in and wreak havoc. I think it's the nation after them being Greece. Alexander the Great will finish off the destruction of Tyre. But the king of Tyre, he's being judged here. It's a sad, tragic ending to his incredible authority and, 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 and crafty uh, craftiness in trade and knowing how to make a lot of money and grow powerful. I mean, he started from the bottom, now he's here. That's the idea. This is a guy who climbed to the top with his own cunning, you know, devious scheming. He employed what is commonly referred to as wisdom, but he employed that to make a name and a reputation for himself and build his own empire. He says, "All you who you know you among all who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You've come to a dreadful end and shall be no more forever." Now, is this God making an end of Satan prophetically? Well, we know he's going to. I don't see why he would have to address this to the king of Tyre to be like, I'm kind of talking about you, but I'm mainly talking about Satan who's kind of pulling the strings behind you. 
I don't, I don't know why that would be the case. I don't, maybe you can build a case for that. But the point here is he's bringing an end to the king of Tyre and his empire. That's the point. But all the language used of him makes you kind of think God is addressing a spiritual entity that was in the garden, had this authority and had this luxurious status and sin was found in him. And of course you can go, well, Satan eventually did, you know, uh, rebel. And so do other spiritual beings that rebel against God. So could he be talking about Satan? And sure, why not? Like we know that this fits Satan, but I don't think this is addressed to Satan. Does that make sense? So though this is true of the king of Tyre, I think that's what you're supposed to see is, is this, who's he talking to here? The king of Tyre. But the king of Tyre wasn't in the garden. The king of Tyre didn't fall from the mountain of God. Poetically, in a prophetic, you know, poetic sense he did. Sure. That's the language that's used. It's the idea of something that is high and lofty being brought low. Satan also. So it makes sense that if the king of Tyre is walking in the ways of the enemy, that God would address the king of Tyre in a similar fashion and address certain aspects of the king of Tyre that are similar to Satan and his fall, right? And humanity's fallen. People follow Satan and they fall hard into destruction and death and they're no more. The king of Tyre is one of those. In Isaiah chapter 14, and I could probably do a longer study on this because I know it's not that convincing, but I didn't really intend to be convincing here. I just wanted to show you that there's language used of kings and kingdoms that is similar to how the kingdom of darkness and Satan is described. Um, Isaiah 14, 3 through 23. It says, uh, this is a taunt against Babylon, not a lamentation, but this is more like a, wow, that's embarrassing, bro. When the Lord has given you rest from your pain and turmoil and the hard service with which you were made to serve, take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. Oh, how the oppressor has ceased. The insolent fury has ceased. The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of rulers that struck the peoples in wrath with unceasing blows that ruled the nations in anger with unrelenting persecution. This is a madman. This is someone you want to die. Like, honestly, if you're under his, you know, reign, you want him to die. This guy's terrible. He's unrelenting. He's full of wrath. He's destructive. He murders anyone in his way. The whole earth is at rest and quiet. They break forth into singing. The cypresses rejoice at you. The cedars of Lebanon, right? Speaking to the people, saying, since you were laid low, no woodcutter comes against us. Sheol beneath is stirred up. You can say it's referring to the trees because as the king of Babylon would go and rampage through town. He would often use, you know, set up siege works using the surrounding, you know, trees and cut those down. So could be trees, but I think it's both and people and trees. Sheol beneath is stirred up to meet you when you come. It rouses the shades to greet you. All who were leaders of the earth, it raises from their thrones all who were kings of the nations. All of them will answer and say to you, you too have become as weak as us. Ha <laughs> ha. Look at you now. You're such a big guy. You're so weak now. Uh, you've become just like us. You thought you were a big man walking around with your big sword. Well, Nebuchadnezzar, where are you now? Oh, that's weird. You're where we are. Remember when you killed us? It's funny how that works. Ironic, huh? Your pomp is brought down to shield the sound of your harps. Maggots are laid as a bed beneath you, and worms are your covers. You're describing the end of the king of Babylon. Now look, look at how he's addressed. Oh, how you are fallen from heaven. Oh, day star, son of dawn. How you're cut down to the ground. 
you who laid the nations low. <laughs> now, who's he addressing? Is God suddenly shifting without telling us and talking about Satan? He's like, oh, you who are fallen from heaven. And you're like, are you talking about Nebuchadnezzar? Oh, you who are fallen. God, tell us. <laughs> He's still talking about the king of Babylon. But look at the way King Nebuchadnezzar's fall is described. It's as a fall from heaven. Used to be high and lofty. Used to be over the earth. I mean, every everyone was under your rule. And now you've fallen. Well, who else fall? fell? <laughs> king of Tyre. Who else fell? The serpent in Genesis 3. Who else fell? Anyone else? The, the, the Tower of Babel and, you know, um, Nimrod, those fellows. Everyone who rebels against God and follows the ways of the enemy and his kingdom, they end up falling. How you're cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. And usually this gets... People make this into, uh, they, they build some kind of understanding of Satan out of this passage. And they're like, oh, this has given us commentary on Satan's, you know, huge fall. I don't think it is. I just think this is a king who is walking in the footsteps of uh, Satan and following in his ways. And just like Satan's end is a big fall and his demons, so will those who follow in his footsteps experience that kind of fall. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high, but you're brought down to Sheol. And this is what King Nebuchadnezzar essentially says in Daniel's account. He says things like this, I'm pretty much God. Let's say, whoa, bro. And God goes, that's it. You're going to be an animal. Literally, you're just going to, your little fingernails are going to turn into talons. Your hair's going to grow out look like a Muppet. But you are brought down to Sheol to the far reaches of the pit. Those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. Is this the man who made the earth tremble? So is this, this is not talking about a demonic entity or spiritual being, though it's reminiscent of Satan and his fall. It's talking about a man who made the earth tremble. King Nebuchadnezzar, he shook kingdoms. He made the world like a desert and overthrew its cities. He didn't let prisoners go, go home. Is this the man? <laughs> this is the guy? Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, what happened, buddy? How'd you end up where we are? I thought you were strong and big. Maybe you killed us? How'd that go for you, bud? All the kings of the nations lie in glory, each in his own tomb, but you are cast out away from your grave like a loathed branch, clothed with the slain, those pierced by the sword, who go down to the stones of the pit like a dead body trampled underfoot. It goes on and on and on. But I, I just want you to see that language is used of rebellious kings and their kingdoms that could be used of Satan and his kingdom and the fall they experience and the, and the fall that's inevitably coming their way and the destruction and, and ultimate you know ending that's going to come their way. It's the same language. It's as if kings and kingdoms can choose to embody the ways of the kingdom of darkness. That's what's happening in our world. That is the, 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 the narrative that's on repeat called human history. It's the repeating story of people rebel against God, choose to follow Satan, and the kingdom of darkness, 
brings darkness through them and through their reign and rule and authority to oppress and ruin and destroy and bring death. And eventually God steps in, brings that to nothing, destroys that kingdom and that king. It's the story of human history on repeat. That's all that is. And we're supposed to learn from it, and we haven't. We haven't. So I want you to see this. When you have rebellious human kingdoms that are following in the footsteps of Satan and his kingdom, and they're choosing to be an extension of Satan's kingdom, usually they're characterized by idolatry and false gods. A few passages for your consideration. Isaiah chapter 10. It says, As my hand has reached to the kingdoms of the idols, whose carved images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols as I've done to Samaria and her images? This is God speaking of the pagan, Gentile, ungodly kingdoms that surround you know, Israel that are marked by idolatry and pagan gods. And then he goes, Jerusalem... Samaria is no different. Whether you look at the northern region of Israel or the southern, they're the same. They're marked by their kingdoms of idols. That's been the story from the beginning. So you wonder, how do people, how do kingdoms, how do rulers end up under the sway of the enemy? It's called idolatry. It's called exchanging the glory of the immortal God for that which was created. And you worship the creation and bow down and give no homage to God as the creator. Psalm 79.6 says, Pour out your anger on the nations. They don't know you. And on the kingdoms that do not call upon your name. What makes these kingdoms enemy kingdoms is that they choose to give their allegiance and loyalty to false gods and idols. Which Paul will tell us in 1 Corinthians The idols are nothing more than some physical representation of a spiritual entity that's actually behind them. But the idol itself is nothing. So kingdoms that align themselves with Satan and his purposes have chosen to worship the the creation over the creator. And it's garbage. I mean, you can go on and on. and, And I'll give you a few passages to consider, okay? Because not only are human kingdoms, enemy human kingdoms, and governments characterized by idolatry and a rejection of God and disregarding him completely, but they're also characterized by chaos and rage. You can go to Genesis 10. um, Well, actually, chaos and rage is one of the characteristics, but also it's almost like this beastly unity. The Tower of Babel is a good example. Uh, Genesis 10.10, Genesis 11.1 through 9. Psalm 46, verse 6. The nations, you know, they're raging and it's it's almost like they are agreeing to unify around a common goal of taking down God and his kingdom. Psalm 2, 1 through 3. These are all passages that show you there's absolute chaos and rage, but there is some sense of unified purpose. Like they might be stupid and full of absolute chaos and divided in a lot of senses, but they agree on one fact. They're united against God. And that is the heartbeat of rebellious human kingdoms that don't want to be a part of God and his kingdom. The last thing I want to mention is this. The ultimate, uh, well, I guess I'll just say it. The ultimate destruction of these kingdoms that are against God, it's inevitable. This is, I'm going to give you a few passages. We're just going to read. We're just going to read. 
all these different times where a rebellious king and his kingdom and nation are given chance after chance to turn, to repent, to turn away from sin, to turn back to God, whatever it is, they're given chance after chance to believe the truth. They don't. Okay. Judgment comes and God makes a horror of every rebellious human kingdom that comes against him. He brings them down. He chops them low. They metaphorically fall from heaven. There's a poetic imagery. You know, the poetic imagery used of these nations and kings is something we should really meditate on and go, that's a, that's a big fall. <laughs> Isaiah thirteen nineteen, Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the splendor and the pomp of the Chaldeans will be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them. This is the, I'll say it like this. This is the, um, the destiny of every rebel kingdom and every human king that is against God. Every rule and authority that is against God, this is their destiny. Isaiah 14, 6, those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. Like we read it, you know, a couple seconds ago. Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms? This is the guy? And God brings him low? Chops him down? Isaiah 37, 20, so now, O Lord, our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. This is God's saving, because redemption for one means destruction for the other, doesn't it? Isaiah twenty three eleven. he has stretched out his hand over the sea. He has shaken the kingdoms. The Lord has given command concerning Canaan to destroy its strongholds. We can go passage after passage. Isaiah 47, 5, sit in silence and go into darkness. O daughter of the Chaldeans, for you shall no more be called the mistress of kingdoms. People can, kingdoms can have a reputation and, and a glory and even some kind of renown for, for centuries even. God will eventually let that nation descend into ultimate depravity if, uh, if they don't change their mind and destroy themselves. And God is over that process of destruction and them bringing, being brought low trying to give you understanding of what's happening in our world around us. If you're like, my nation's falling apart, my country's not the same. Exactly. Exactly. This is what happens when human beings are left to their own devices and don't want to follow God. The people follow, in, you know, end up being dragged into their destruction. Isaiah 21.9, it says, Behold, here comes riders, horsemen in pairs. And he answered, Fallen, fallen, is Babylon. A lot of passages I'm pulling actually refer to Babylon because Babylon becomes an icon and an archetype of any human kingdom that is opposed to God. It becomes this representation of what is, you know, opposed to God and his kingdom. It says, fallen is Babylon, all the carved images of her gods, he's shattered to the ground. So when God brings judgment, brings a nation low, knocks a king off his throne, especially when you read the account of the Exodus, it's God judging the gods of that nation. Revelation 18, 2, and he called out with a mighty voice. This is again what we see in Revelation. Fallen is Babylon, the great. She's become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, and every unclean and detestable beast. Right, we can go to Jeremiah 15, 4, 18, 7, Jeremiah 25, 17, 29, 18. Whether we look at Assyria, whether we look at Babylon, whether we look at Tyre, whether we look at Edom or Egypt or even Israel, 
the kingdoms that are installed and led by human rebels will ultimately be brought low. Absolutely low. And brought to nothing. This is the judgment. So there is individual judgment. Every person will be judged for their own either sin or belief in Christ. And you'll be welcomed into the kingdom and you'll be declared a citizen. But also, God does bring judgment on entire kingdoms and nations and rulers that remain in obstinate rebellion to him. It's tragic. But this is just what happens. And it's human history on repeat, isn't it? Over and over, it's what we see. So if you're trying to make sense of why things only get worse and why things aren't getting fixed and why rulers and authorities and governments aren't actually concerned with the people's good and have no good intentions, they're opposed to God and his kingdom. But the cool thing about Wednesday is we actually get to look at um, how the kingdoms of this world are not just destroyed, but they're overtaken and transitioned And the kingdom of God enters in. It's a handing over of authority. It's like, you guys have sucked for centuries and millennium. So here comes the real king. All authority is being handed over to him now. All power and dominion is being handed over to him. You rebels, you get to perish. And then next Monday we get to talk about how Israel is a fantastic example of a kingdom that is installed ultimately by God (laughs) calls them to be a kingdom of priests but over time as you know time runs its course these people grow darker and darker and more evil and more evil and eventually culminates in them crucifying the son of God and they're brought low and Jesus literally tells them the kingdom of God is taken away from you taken away So we're going to make sense of that. All right. But that's all I got for you guys today. These aren't going to be super long because of the fact that I don't want to overload you. And as I say most times, sometimes having a lot of information is not helpful. But at least you have something to chew on today. The ultimate destiny of all rebel kingdoms that align themselves with the kingdom of darkness. Listen, if you didn't know this, this is Above Reproach Ministry. You can visit our website. Click any of the links in the description below if you're on YouTube or on Facebook. And go to AboveReproachMinistry.com. We have a bunch of free stuff for you. Here's all the free stuff. Let's run through it. Our online church is popping. Go check it out. It's on the Discord app. If you're looking for godly fellowship with people all around the world, go check it out. Obviously, our YouTube channel and all the resources there. We have a podcast, so all these sermons and messages are turned into podcasts, so you can listen anywhere where you get your podcast. We also have a second podcast, Above Reproach Church Podcast. All the Bible study courses and online you know, uh, classes that we have are completely free. These are all free because of generous supporters like you guys. Uh, we have a 40-day course, a 27-day, an 11-day, and then other keyword courses that are based on Ephesians. We have devotional studies. So if you're looking to really go deep into the book of Ephesians and trace out a key theme in that book over the course of a week, we have different studies you can do that are free. Bible study workshops that will teach you how to read the Bible just like these online courses. All of my sermon notes for all of these messages and series I've done, they're completely free and available. All the Bible study worksheets that we've developed are there, kind of like cheat sheets. Go check that out. Um, 
And then if you want, you can get a copy of my book, Fruitful, The Essential Keys to Living the Most Abundant, Satisfying Christian Life This Side of Heaven. You can check that out right here, sample it. Um, that's all our free stuff. And then you got the book, Cost of Money, because of publishing. And if you want to know more about this online ministry, or if you're a new believer, click this. Go, new believer, this is for you. If you just came back to Christ, if you're taking your faith seriously again after a long time, if you just really wanted to go deep, or you're just a brand new believer and you're new to all this, this is where you should start. Prayer, identity, who Jesus is, how to read the scriptures, the essential components of the fruitful life that God leads us into, all of that is here, how to find a good church. Um, And then if you want to give to this ministry, I have a wife and two kids. This is my full-time gig. There's so many dimensions to this that people have no idea, (laughs) but this is how I support my family. This is what God has called me to, um, and it extends well beyond me. So if you would like to give to help us teach people how to read the Bible so they can live and teach the Bible themselves, and you think this is an admirable mission, go to abovereproachministry.com slash donate, and then you can give um, through debit or credit card. You can give by sending a check to PO Box 509 Inman, South Carolina, You can give through PayPal or Cash App or Venmo or become a monthly supporter through Patreon and you get some exclusive benefits. And if you really want to support us, but also get some kind of cool thing in the process, get some church merch right here on our store. It's linked in the YouTube video. You should see little icons um, showing you the things we have. But all these different ways that you can support what God is doing here, whether digital or wear Jesus on your body and wear scripture on a sweatshirt, It all supports what God is doing here and helps us to reach more people because all of this is made possible ultimately because of God, um, but through your generous support. So that's all I got for you guys today. Um, I think that is it. Wednesday, we will be back. Mark your calendars. Wednesday, we'll talk about how the the kingdom of man is handed over to Jesus and what that transition process looks like and what we as believers can expect. All right. So I'll see you guys Wednesday. You guys keep moving towards Jesus. And um, yeah, go pray and read your Bible. That's all I got.